say the prayer to the Holy Spirit. Come, O Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirits, and they shall be created. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. One person asked me whether one could pray to the general of the Syrians, Naaman. And I don't quite know, you'll have to ask Abraham that, uh, but uh, the strange thing is, whether he's a saint or not, I'm certain he would be very happy that we used the question that saved him. If the, if the prophet had asked thee to do some great thing, surely you'd have done it. Why not rather what he is now asked of you? As he learned that lesson, he'd be as flattered as any of us would be if our words were quoted. I don't personally wouldn't pray to him because after Christ fulfilled the law, then he gave us a more powerful um, way of reaching God. Uh, but on the other hand, certainly our Lord appreciated Naaman and cured him. Somebody asked me about St. Ignatius and the prayer that I read out, and you'll find Ignatius hardly had anything original of his own. Almost everything he borrowed from books. He wasn't a clever man. He got his Master of Arts degree at Paris when he was middle-aged. But that prayer, which comes in the meditation for the beginning of the second week, is on page 68 in my version. If you turn up the exercise book uh, to the second week, you'll find that prayer at the very end of the first exercise. And then Ignatius had another marvelous prayer right at the end of the exercises, the last meditation on contemplation for divine love. They're both prayers marvelous and filled with the whole of his story. And you do well in a retreat to look at the exercise book and simply take the two prayers which Ignatius himself said. If you go to Rome, you can see the little room where he lived. It's still there. And you can see the little balcony so that when he lived in a cave, he had the wildness of Manresa and all the inspiration that gave. And for the last 15 years of his life, he only had a few stars that he could see in the very narrow streets in the center of Rome. So the whole of his life, all his inspiration at the start, all ended up um, totally alone there, simply writing letters in order to defend the church with such success. I think about silence, I would commend people to try not to talk in passages, because that's always, not that you're doing anything wrong, but it gives the impression to everybody else that this is a bingo drive. The silence is really marvelous, uh, but if you talk in the library or along the passages, then you'll never be a trappist. They always withdraw slightly from the place where other people are going to walk, so that you don't disturb other people. Well, now, this meditation is the most difficult and the next because it's on the key subject, really, on which everything turns. During the retreat, I am hoping very much, through one saint or another, to cover different aspects of 
life, the, the sanctity of a layman, the sanctity of those who have doubts about the faith, and indeed, I want to speak a, quite a lot about prayer in one form or another, so that it will all come to, a, I hope, to a point at the end. So far, the key subjects are, A, that holiness is a frame of mind, and I'll only be holy stitch by stitch. I will not be holy in a flash. And that if I'm not holy, I'll never see our Lord. I won't be able to. And the second thing is that I must do the little things if God asks them, and not only reserve holiness for great things. Otherwise, you get discouraged. You feel, well, I can't do what somebody else like Ignatius did, that he felt right at the start, I can do what Dominic did. And indeed, Dominic and Francis and Ignatius all about, all did great things, but they didn't know it. If you ask Mother Teresa today, she wouldn't know it. Nobody had, it's only people afterwards who say what a great person that was. So my job and yours in a retreat is to keep down to very simple facts. Now I would like very much this afternoon as you go along, you ought to read either the first chapter of St. John, the famous passage we used to read in the last gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Or you ought to read the first opening of the Apostles' Creed. And the saint we're going to think about now, he was in my parliament when I was young, but only a name. He was sort of junior congressman for Minnesota and never said a word worth reporting because I didn't know. Now I find he's the greatest of all the doctors of the church, but I didn't know that then. But we'll come to him slowly. The first thing I find is, is to take out the Gospels and to read the letters of the men who actually followed Jesus. They're almost more important than the Gospel. Cardinal Newman says the gospel is of the documents, the apostles are the commentaries. If you follow the gospel without a commentary, you can go wrong on the gospel. And therefore, the great men who followed Jesus saw him die, ran away, then received the Holy Spirit. They're the people who give us the right impression. So that is to say, Peter's first and second letters, um, John's three letters, James you can leave out uh, if you want, because although he said a lot of lovely things, they're not instantly practical. And then you can read St. Jude's letter, and of course the great St. Paul. These are people who live their lives by what the Holy Spirit told them at Pentecost. Now I did it myself for a good reason, as I'll explain to you, and it, it saddened me, because I had the wrong impression, totally false, uh, that the church was corrupt today, but was marvelous in the days of the apostles. The great Monsignor Knox, who I knew very well at Oxford, he was the chaplain and lived next door to us, Knox put that in his wonderful book, Enthusiasm. The biggest lie in history is that today the church is awful, and that in the apostles' times they were saying shalom and kumbaya and all the other crap we say now that they were all airborne and charismatic and that we are constipated, nothing of it. As Knox says, 
there's no proof whatever that the church in the apostolic times was very good. Indeed, if I've counted them up, I think there are more mortal sins in the Acts of the Apostles than in any current number of the Washington Post. <laughs> well, Ananias and Sapphira were found stealing money out of the Peter's pence. St. Peter struck them both dead. No one struck Nixon dead yet. <laughs> no, it's a most extraordinary thing. The Acts are full of tragedy. Just as the Holy Ghost was airborne and the whole church was full of inspiration, terrible things happened. Now, I would like you to convince yourself, I did, and it gave me quite a shock. You read St. Peter's first letter, and he's, at that time, all is going well. And he says, well done, and you darling Christians, and God will help you. His second letter says, there are certain swines who are tearing the church to pieces. He says, they'll be punished like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm longing for that day. Yes, St. Peter's terrible in his second letter. St. John, we always, especially nuns always say St. John is God, the apostle of love. But his second chapter of his first letter starts by saying there are too many liars about. You don't say that in a convent. This idea that St. John was always saying, gee, gee, Jesus, not on the life of you. He was horrified at false prophets, and he was the one in his first letter who said, these aren't Jews, but these are people who belong, who are with us and have left us. I can understand the Jews attacking St. Paul because he was, to them, a man who had uh, left, he was lapsed. He'd abandoned the law. So I can understand that I think Paul understood that. No, but John is quite clear, and you can read it in his first epistle. He's saying a lot about charity, but he's also saying that these men who were once ours and shouldn't have been with us are going around tearing the church to pieces. What were they tearing the church to pieces about? This is the Holy Ghost that only just come. Now you'll find that very oddly in his second and third letters, which most people have never read. We're postponing it to heaven to even open the envelope. They're both very short. And in the first of them, the uh, that's the second letter of John, he tells us there are evil men going around saying that Jesus was not a man. That's a terribly important point, right back at the beginning. In fact, John's got a very strange thing. In his second and third epistle, he actually writes down, I was going to write this to you, but I think I better come and tell you privately by, by word of mouth. If you're inter interested in the inspiration of the Bible, we only, we the only inspiration is that he didn't dare write it down, but he doesn't tell us what he said. I'd love to have heard what he said. In his second and third epistle, he does that. Dear St. Jude, we all now make him the patron of impossible cases. If I was Jude, I wouldn't answer any prayer of anybody who hadn't taken the trouble to read my only letter. <laughs> because Jude starts off, the very first paragraph, I was going to write to you a lovely letter, but things are so bad now, and there's such evil men tearing the church to pieces, that I, and then he wrote a tremendous, his letters almost vicious. They weren't saying kumbaya by any means. I can't say what they were saying in public. And St. Paul, of course, was even more tragic. Paul went to Corinth and he founded that marvelous church. It was a Roman city, the only Roman city in the East that talk Latin officially. He founded the church, lived a year there. Then he moved off 
uh, to Ephesus, 150 miles away. Within six months, the church in Corinth had collapsed. There was a lady called Chloe. There's always one devout lady who, who like with Ignatius, who wrote to Paul and said, you better come and see what's happening. And then it got so bad that the, they sent three knights of Columbus were sent to see him in Ephesus to tell him that there was a man with incest who they were all playing golf with <laughs> and was treating his wife. Then he went on to say, then Paul, poor chap, didn't know what to do. He, uh, as Monsignor Knox wrote a brilliant chapter saying what the Corinthians wrote to Paul. You can tell it if you read his answer. And Paul starts off, he, he always has one sort of liturgical line of saying, God bless all the saints in Corinth. He always has that one line. And then he says, what are all these slogans I hear? I'm for Paul, I'm for Peter, I'm for Jesus, I'm for Apollos. There was a Jesus party in Corinth opposed to St. Paul. Right back at the start, when everyone was charismatic and talking with tongues, then there was a terrible booze up at the liturgy. All the rich people had a drink beforehand. He told them to drink at home and not come and drink in church. Then there were people washing their dirty linen in public, which applies to the church today. It's amazing. When you read the apostles, you're conscious they're very frightened. And the main fear then was there are people who say that Jesus did not become a man, that he was an apparition, that he didn't really die. And then on the other hand was the beginnings of that awful heresy where they said Jesus was a man and not really God. This is where it tears the church to pieces. Well, okay, it all went well because thanks to the vigilance of the apostles and watch and pray, as Monsignor Knox says, how the church survived is because of the, the apostles were on their guard. They were terrified that the truth would be altered. And it was altered a bit, but they saved it. And when the persecution broke out, and this was only the year 64 AD, our Lord had only been dead about 20 years, when the church was persecuted. And the persecution lasted for 261 years. That's back in American history to the beginning of the 18th century, just about when Archbishop Carroll's father emigrated to the States. For 260 years, Christians were torn to pieces. They were eaten by lions. Terrible, terrible persecution lasting 261 years, five times longer than Russia has the communists have been in power in Russia. And thousands of people died her heroically. And as Knox says, this wasn't due to particular virtue in those days. It was the, the vigilance of the apostles, I feel, you and I have the same obligation to be vigilant today as we try to be on a thing like abortion. One day we're going to suffer terribly if we really stand out for what's right. So we ought to think of the martyrs of the early church. They were wonderful. And then the most extraordinary thing happened, and that was uh, that eventually the Emperor Constantine became a Christian. He wasn't a very good man before that. He'd murdered his wife about three weeks before, and, and, and he wasn't, a, as, a, as a pagan, he wasn't all that good, but all of a sudden, little by little, the Holy Spirit renewed the face of the earth, and the emperor became a Christian. And then you've got the great council of Nicaea in 325, 
which we never think about, but which really changes the whole of our picture. We, we jump really from St. Peter and Paul down to Bernadette and St. Teresa of Lisieux. We leave out all the middle. The church of the early church is marvelous. I, I thought it was worthwhile, even with the time we've got, uh, to read um, just a description of the meeting uh, um, at Nicaea, written originally by Eusebius, and this is taken from a copy. By the middle of May, 325, the bishops gathered at Nicaea to the number of 300. The first meeting of these devout men, this is a quotation, was marked by touching scenes, united by one and the same faith and by common trials, but separated by seas and mountains, they were personally unacquainted with one another. They'd never seen each other, knowing only each other's merits and sufferings. The most illustrious servants of God were pointed out. In the first rank were the survivors of the persecution, bearing on their bodies the stigmata of a glorious confession. There was Paphnutius, bishop of a city of Tobiad. One of his legs had been rendered useless by mutilation when he was laboring in the mines, and one of his eyes had been gouged out. There was Paul, bishop of Neo-Caesarea on the Euphrates, one of whose hands had been mutilated by fire. When they entered, a feeling of compassion swept over the assembly, and many of those present ran up to them and kissed the scars of their holy wounds. The solitaries, whose remarkable austerities were favorite subjects of fireside tales in every Christian family, also attracted attention. There was James of Nisibis, recognized by his garment of camel hair and goat's hair, which made one think of John the Baptist. For years he had lived in the desert frontiers of Mesopotamia and Persia, subsisting on raw herbs and wild fruit. We never think of this, that they all met with the emperor going to come in and open the great council of Nicaea, and here were the last of the heroes, the people who really had suffered tremendously uh, for their... Um... Meanwhile, Constantine arrived at Nicaea. At once, the council celebrated the solemn opening of its deliberations. According to the most probable calculation, the date was June the 14th, 325. Eusebius of Caesarea, who played an important part in the council, describes the ceremony thus. On each side of the interior of the central building of the palace were many seats disposed in order, which were occupied by those who had been invited to attend, according to their rank. As soon then as the whole assembly had seated themselves with becoming gravity, a general silence prevailed in expectation of the emperor's arrival. And first of all, three of his immediate family entered in succession, and others also preceded his approach. Not of the soldiers or guards who usually accompanied him, but only friends who avowed the faith of Christ. And now, all rising at the signal which indicated the emperor's entrance, at last he himself proceeded through the midst of the assembly like some heavenly rays of light, reflecting the glowing radiance of a purple robe and adorned with brilliant splendor of gold and precious stones. Such was the external appearance of his person, and with regard to his mind it was evident 
that he was distinguished by piety and godly fear. This was indicated by his downcast eyes, the blush on his countenance, the modesty of his gait. All these graces united to a suavity of manner and a serenity becoming his imperial station declared the excellence of his mental qualities to be above all praise. Well, I've read that out because I think it's nice to hear the history of this great occasion. Now, sitting in the audience there, one of the, as one of the important people, was a young deacon. He was only 26. He hadn't yet been made a priest. He was the secretary of the Bishop of Alexandria. In that council, nearly all came from the Middle East. Most spoke Greek. There were two or three from Spain, two from France, and the Pope from Rome sent two deputies. But on the whole, all the parts St. Paul had crossed, all the places where Antioch and Alexandria and Egypt, all along there, the bishops all gathered. And here in the middle was this young man, very slight, very intelligent. He was later to become the great doctor of the church, St. Athanasius. Now, everybody cheered, everybody clapped, but Athanasius was not happy. Why? For the very same reason as before the persecution. There was one group saying that Jesus was not a real man, and there was another group saying that Jesus was only an apparition, and he and the Father were one. This was the division that split the whole church. And Athanasius wouldn't have it, nor would he have, though I can leave that to your Fifth amend Amendment, he was very frightened that the emperor, dressed up also splendidly, was going to take over the church, which eventually he did. The Eastern Church today has been ruled for centuries. The emperor laid on the great palace, he laid on transport for the old bishops, who only had one leg each, he laid on everything. He paid all their fares, real federal council, and they couldn't get him out again, except Athanasius. Aged, by the time he became a bishop, he was acclaimed by applause in Alexandria. The people chose him. He was only 30. Athanasius somehow knew there was something wrong. We needn't meditate on the troubles of Constantine, whose mother, after all, was a saint, uh, but uh, what we could worry about is this great division whether God was a real man, and was he real God. Now, there's no problem with the pagans. That you can see very clearly. The pagan gods were jokes, and therefore they're like King Arthur, or uh, the sort of uh, rubbish we have in all early history. And the pagans saw no trouble in gods coming down on earth, because they were only playing the fool on Mount Olympus, and they had love affairs and threw stones at each other, Venus and Neptune and Bacchus, you don't have to worry about them. Newman said they were only made to last seven, 70 years, a man's life. By the time you got old, you got fed up with a whole lot of them. So that, you remember, if you'd like to go back before Paul got to Athens, uh, where Paul and Barnabas uh, came to Lystra, you'll find it in Acts 14, when the crowd thought that Paul and Barnabas were gods. In fact, the pastor came round with a bull and was going to sacrifice it. And Paul nearly had a fit. He rushed screaming into the crowd and said, Who do you think we are? They thought what, the Barnabas was Zeus and Paul was Hermes. 
They thought nothing of God's coming down, nor did they think anything of men going up. After all, they deified all the emperors. I don't know if you saw that marvelous British BBC film, I, Claudius, but Claudius was a god, and Caligula deified his horse. He had a temple with a horse in it. That they didn't think anything of it, but they were only names. So there's no difficulty at all in the pagan world of the gods of the Red Indians who lived on an island in, in Canada, you can see it still, or any of these gods. But then you suddenly got this strange thing with the Bible, that the Bible made so much about God, rightly, that the whole of Genesis right the way down, that there's only one God and this supreme God and Yahweh we now call him, that's pretty scaring anyway, Cardinal Heenan wrote to all our parish priests and said, when you're in the pulpit, don't say Yahweh, say God. Because this is an affectation too, there are all sorts of names. The Jews only said the holy name of God once a year. But the Bible produced wonderful adoration of God with the angels and everybody worshipping him, and the Mohammedans have gone on with the same picture. Neither the Mohammedans nor the Jews could possibly understand that the infinite God could become a man. I think God knew that from the start. God wasn't surprised by it. It was pretty obvious that this, with the more honor you pay to the infinite God rightly, the more you adore him, the more you read Psalms, the more you feel he's so far above us, how could he come down on earth and, his, and all his fire would burn us all up? The infinite power of God is so great that like you and me and Moses at the burning bush, you can only put your forehead on the ground and say, I adore. And that's been the disaster in the world uh, that therefore those religions exclude the idea that the real God could become a man. Cardinal Newman, when he was a young parson and the eminent in Oxford, he ceased to belong to the Bible Society. He was their secretary, he resigned to the consternation of everybody because he said, because this isn't the story, not the whole story. This book coming down and all that honor to God, all well-intentioned, all revealed, what's it doing? It's substituting a whole lot of emotion to the real fact that God so loved this world that he became a man. And so you get this extraordinary thing that Athanasius saw that. And Athanasius, we owe it to him, two things that he pointed out. God didn't come on earth only so that you and I would be forgiven our sins. That tremendous emphasis in the old law, and indeed even in some of the Christian churches, on justification and the Christ by dying mediated, that's not the whole story. God came on earth because he wanted men to become divine, holiness. God could have forgiven all our sins, including original sin, without coming down at all. He could not make us holy unless he came and lived among us. So Athanasius' great contribution was that the God had to become a man. And what's more, he had to be a man, not a pretended man. The second thing that Athanasius made quite clear is that if he wanted to join us to him and that we would become divine, he had to be divine to do that. If he wasn't God, 
then he was finished. Then he couldn't give us anything. And so Athanasius, we owe to him the tremendous thing about the Incarnation. He wrote those words in the Creed, or helped to compile them, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. That what he taught us was God has a private life. That this infinite God, Yahweh, it's revealed in the, by God himself, he had a son and he had a Holy Spirit. If, so God can talk to himself, he can have love, he can be like us, if he hasn't got that, he's hopeless. I went to the zoo at Denver once, I always loved zoos, and there was a great chimpanzee sitting there on a stool, looking rather rudely at me, and I stared him back in the eyeballs for about three minutes, and I wondered what he was thinking about, and I said to the keeper, uh, what's that th animal thinking about? And he said, oh, he's mad. He's been here 20 years, and he's got no girl, he's got no children, he's just looking at the tourists, and that would drive you mad. I looked at this poor thing sitting there like this. I had to go to the parrot house to get a bit of sanity, having seen this huge thing sitting there. Now, I would be irreverent if I was suggesting God was like that, but if God is own all by himself like the, the Statue of Liberty or Lord Nelson on a column in Trafalgar Square, well then, the whole of the love of God is gone. All we've got is fear. So Athanasius taught us that, that first of all, God has a private life. And when we say God from God, light from light, we don't know how it happened, but there's where we start. So the trouble, the sadness uh, that the apostles saw came again. And at a later talk, we can go on with it, because 1,500 years later, Cardinal Newman went through the same thing. When he got retired from the Bible Society, he went back to Athanasius, and read Athanasius, and translated him, actually. And Newman suddenly found, he was trying to build up the Christian tradition, he suddenly found, my God, I'm a Unitarian, I don't really believe that our Lord was a man. And when I read Newman's words, I read through the Gospels, and I thought, my God, I'm an Arian. I think our Lord's a kind of uh, vice president, or Prince Charles just a bit lower than his father and sent on all the dirty work and hoping that the president will die. <laughs> you, it's funny, lots of Christians I know today, when you look into it, and we'll go and think of it later, they love Jesus, they can say lovely things about him, they don't know what it means that God so loved this world that he had to come down. He had to come down. And so that's the note on which I would like to end this talk because I, I believe that if, if you see the worry of the apostles, you'll see the worry today, that it's a very, very delicate thing with the same words used, whether you believe that God has a private life, that he sent his own son, light from light, begotten, not made, down on earth, then you'll get the prayer of St. Ignatius, who really believed or wanted to go to Palestine, where God-made man lived. Or you'll get Christians who are vaguely love God and, and then give all their attention to the year of the child, the year of the decrepit, and the year of the God knows what, or Cambodia, anything rather than say through, say the creed and say, and in Jesus Christ is only Son our Lord. So we'll end the um, talk at that point. Now, just before I leave, today at lunch and this evening, uh, we're having this new tape, and I'm very 
pleased and proud of it in a way because um, it was made last year. Cardinal Newman preached his last sermon at Oxford after 37 years, 100 years ago, last year, in the Jesuit church. He was an old, old man. And he came back and preached a sermon. And to celebrate the centenary last year, Sir Alec Guinness uh, came, who's a devout Newman fan and a very holy man himself, Sir Alec Guinness offered to come down and read Newman's sermon from the pulpit, which he did. I had to make the introduction because he didn't feel up to doing both sides of the tape. So I apologize that I, myself, and the Redemptorist Fathers, uh, we provided the background on what, what you'll hear at lunch, just how this sermon came to be preached. But at supper tonight, it's only a short sermon of 18 um, minutes. Guinness, a man of 68 himself, with a marvelous way, puts over what old Cardinal Newman must have sounded like on the Holy Trinity. And what's so interesting is, very much of that came out of St. Athanasius. Newman translated St. Athanasius when he was an Anglican and gave it to Dr. Pusey for the Episcopalian books on the Fathers. And then, in old age, when he was just on 80, he retranslated Athanasius again because so important was this point. And when in the tape you hear him saying, we can understand that the Father is not the Son and the Son is not the Holy Spirit, practically all of it I found the other day in the work that Newman published at 80. So you could say his whole life was built up on Athanasius, and that's why if I was young again, I would elect St. Athanasius I wouldn't to my parliament. I wouldn't make him prime minister. I'd make him minister of education. 